Hello and welcome to This Is Fine, a podcast about engineering brought to you by CodeOwners.com. I'm Brandon, your host and one of the founders. Join me as we interview founders and leaders in technology and discuss topics ranging from bringing dev tools to market to scaling infrastructure and so much more. Thank you for joining us. We're happy you're here. How's it going, Jason? Good, good, good. I'm really happy that you uh, had time to be able to come and hang out with me today. Uh, it's gonna, it's gonna be fun. We're gonna, have, we're gonna go through a pretty, pretty interesting background and talk a lot of things about engineering. That'll be fun. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, first and foremost, for people listening, just in case they haven't read anything or heard anything about you, uh, who are you, Jason? Uh, sure. So, hey, everybody. I'm Jason Warner. I'm, um, I'm an investor at Redpoint Ventures. Now, we invest in all things internet infrastructure, um, tech. You might imagine. Uh, before that, I was the CTO at GitHub for four years. So two years pre-Microsoft acquisition, two years post-Microsoft acquisition. Um, things that we incubated while I was there, um, you know, uh, GitHub Actions, packages, security, advanced security analytics. Um, the last two things that I did out of the office of the CTO were the, the search beta, which many of you might be experiencing now, and uh, Copilot, which is the automated code assistance tool. Uh, prior to GitHub, I was the... Um, same role at Heroku, which is a platform as a service now owned by Salesforce. So engineering, security, data, infra, et cetera. For that same thing at Canonical, the people make Ubuntu Linux. So my background is pretty specific and straightforward. It's developers, platforms, public cloud type of stuff, largest systems in the world, if you will, um, distributed system engineer by, by trade. And I tend to run product and engineering and design organizations together. Fantastic. I think you've named uh, every tool I've used. So thanks for those, I guess. <laughs> On behalf of our dev population, no, that's uh, it's really cool. That the GitHub Actions must have been a really interesting project when you started that. That was fun. GitHub Actions was the very first one um, after I joined that we, we kicked off. And it was, you know, obviously for, for very strategic reasons, it was important, but also for very tactical reasons, it was important to do too. So, but that was... Um, you know, the first really major win that I had uh, after joining GitHub. Oh, very cool. That's that's even more exciting. Did you get to get uh, like the full discovery through delivery uh, of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was that I, I had a plan when I was joining GitHub of like what to do with GitHub, the, the entity itself. And GitHub is a story in general, which is there's four co-founders. Three of them weren't, weren't involved in the business when I joined. And the one that was still uh, involved had announced that he was stepping down as the CEO and he wasn't showing, he, he didn't come to work that much anymore. So I was doing everything that was not finance and sales. So from idea to delivery, we did that. Uh, we did GitHub actions and packages, uh, security, uh, advanced analytics, I think like that all before the acquisition. And we even announced um, actions on stage at, at GitHub universe uh, midway through the, the acquisition process. Um, so yeah, all the way through. That's wild. Uh, thank you. Thank you again. Uh, so, I mean, quick for everybody, I'm Brandon. I'm the CEO of Codex. Uh, we build developer tools that make your life better. Uh, so come check us out. Uh, one being codeowners.com and the other being usecodex.com. Yeah, I'm less interesting. So <laughs> let, let's keep it rocking. I do have a fun question in this background, and I know you talked about it in a, a few articles. And I think, you know, obviously, as editors or journalists do, they like pull it here and there. But I do need to ask this. Sure. I saw you got your first role at IBM in a non-traditional way. Uh, the hint here is apparently you can lift. So tell me more. All right. So the, so I joke about this quite a bit because yeah. it, it, it it's, um yeah, my, my first, so it's technically not true. My first real job was 
either helping out my father on a construction job, like digging holes or my grandfather on the farm. That was, you know, our, my background growing up, like either farming or construction. That was what everyone, every Warner did in the family. Um, I also then started working at McDonald's in the town that I lived in instead. And, um, but what I, the, the break into tech was IBM. Um, and I didn't pro I didn't program. I'm not one of those classically, you know, six to eight year olds who gets a computer and starts programming. I didn't literally didn't write my first line of code until I was 17 years old. And I got a job at IBM as a high school co-op. And uh, the reason why I got that was twofold. One was the person who they had before me ended up stealing a lot of computers, printers, oh, no. and memory from, <laughs> from um, IBM. And they were looking for very trustworthy kids to do this. And all they really needed them to do was actually bring printers and computers around the building. So it was all kind of just manual labor in, in setting things up. And so, uh, you know, I, I got the job because I was you know, decently trustworthy and I could carry computers around the building and set them up all day. So and, and to help to help those that may not understand, how heavy was a computer then? I mean, the, the computers, the computers were decently heavy. The printers could be they could be really heavy. Yeah. And it was like you put them on one of those big carts and you like bring them up and down the hallways and things like that. But if you actually had to grab a printer, you're grabbing it full on arms all the way around, holding it. And then try to pick it up. It looked like a big sandbag. I mean, I basically was a power man type of uh, power lifter type of, to, you know, or that's where strong man type of competition thing. It's like, I got the printer. Where do you want me to put it? Like, please, quickly. <laughs> I love it. And this is back when you literally needed to plug into a printer, too. So there's so much. Well, <laughs> like, yeah, it was literally plugged into the printer. And at that entire IBM office, it was getting dual switched, but it was still token ring at the time. Oh, wow. So it was like that. We're, we're talking mid 90s here. So <laughs> yeah. it's. You know, for 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 people who are listening who were born with the the twenties and uh, you know yeah. and their their year the the HPs of today literally weigh a fraction of what those printers were at the time. Oh yeah, I remember. Anyway, my my first laptop I saw was essentially like a twenty five pound brick. Like you're like, this is not like anyway. But that is that's fantastic. I actually uh, one of my first roles was a student intern at IBM as well. So I just love seeing that in the in the background. I on the other hand was given a WYSIWYG editor uh, to like try and build sales enablement docs. So like I was transitioning all these like pamphlets into a thing to make it searchable to the sales team. But it was uh, very different as well. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you for taking me through that. Yeah. When you obviously in your background, you mentioned that uh, you went through uh, one transition was Heroku to GitHub. Um, how was that transition? Like, and I'm thinking in the sense of like, maybe product culture, leadership styles, like the ethos or culture of the companies, like they're both highly regarded, like, you know, institutions, I'd say of engineering. So I'm just interested in what the differences were. On the surface, they actually shared quite a bit. Heroku and GitHub were very close to each other from a product perspective. Um, in, in reality, Heroku and GitHub um, should have felt very close to almost one product. If you combine the two, Heroku plus GitHub, that's in reality what a singular product should have looked like between the two of them. Heroku was by far the more technically advanced product. It had to invent more. It really had to do a lot more than GitHub ever did. Um, and I think Heroku did a lot more for the modern web than almost anybody in the industry. And I think if you take Heroku plus Rails, which is a different thing entirely, but Heroku plus Rails, they really kind of define what the modern standards are going to be. From a leadership perspective and from like a culture perspective, again, similar. They grew they were both Ruby on Rails, so they inherited a lot of um, you know, open source attributes between those um, communities and stuff. But I don't think they could be any more different internally. 
you know, um, the founders of Heroku had very strong opinions. Um, they really viewed um, Heroku running a certain way, being a certain thing, all, all that. And I wasn't there for the earliest days of GitHub, but I was close enough to know that maybe Tom, uh, as one of the co-founders, and maybe one of the two or three or four of the very early employees had some strong opinions, um, but they took a very different approach to management and um, organizational structure and things of that nature. And so you know, they were uh, very, very different in, in that regard. That's really cool. So, and when you, when you joined Heroku, uh, like they've been around for a yeah, while, right? I, I joined yeah. just after the Salesforce acquisition. Oh, it was so, after. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I joined just after. And um, the, the co-founders, one of the co-founders was still there. But the other co-founders had left already. One of the co-founders is still there as a programmer. And he reported to me. And I, um, I didn't even know for a couple of weeks until I was getting my feet underneath me. Then he left and he did some other things. Um, but I joined just after. And it was when the, uh, we'll call like the first professional wave of management was coming in. Um, the founders you know, were left and they kind of had that classic co-founder, founder um, ethos about them. But yeah, and we had to start scaling stuff inside of Salesforce. Revenue was good, but it wasn't off the charts. Um, you know, accelerated quite a bit, and um, kind of take it classically from the uh, monolithic application it was to kind of like a suite of SKUs and things of that nature. Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, like I still remember being able to click a button and have Heroku running. Like that was that was truly a magical moment, I think, in engineering. Yeah, I think, Hero again, going back to like my own experiences in tech, like you, everyone has several magical moments if you're lucky and trying to figure out what tech looks like. And Heroku was probably the most magical of all of those magical experiences that you start to, you know, get push Heroku Master for the very first time. And you're like, oh, that's how software should be. Literally, it defines the overall experience. And there's a lot of things that we could do more of, we should have done more of too, maybe been more strategic um, in the very early days of Heroku and then the midway through the days as well. But still, it's the gold standard for all of um, DX. Yeah. And so let's let's thank you for that. I'm going to dig in there a bit on DX. And by DX, I, you mean developer experience? Is that developer correct? experience? Yeah. So just for everybody, DX, that's what it is. If I say DevX, same thing. Just talking developer experience. One day, the you know, the world will accept one term and we'll carry on. <laughs> this reminds me of back in the day. Remember big data? Like, what do you mean? Oh, yeah. Big I data? mean, like, we're doing it again right now. We've got um, we've got SRE. We had oh, DevOps. Yeah. We've got platform engineering. We're going through it again, it feels like. And I, I don't know if you saw, but stinking old Alberta decided to try to push a lawsuit about engineers not having the title engineer because they haven't been professionally certified. <laughs> I did see this. I rolled my eyes and I, I said, way to, way to not skate where the puck is going, Canada, or Alberta, I guess, in this case here. It's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, using a hockey metaphor since we're both here in Canada. Thank so. you for that. I, I deeply appreciate it. <laughs> um, but anyway, so digging into DX, uh, you mentioned, you know, Heroku, that was one of the first like true magical experiences. And the words I believe you use, I'm paraphrasing slightly, was like, you truly were like, this is what software is supposed to be. So if we pull that out a bit, like, why? So if you put like maybe product Jason in the room with me for a second, like, why is that how it's quote supposed to be? Um, I think it comes down to a couple of different things. One is, is if you think about like, let's, let's actually skip from Heroku because it becomes a little bit of a loaded question for a yeah, second. Fair. Just talk about why Rails was successful in yes. the early days. And I think Rails got a bunch of stuff right, which was, hey, if you want to do something straightforward, rather simple, um, out of the box, it will work. This will work and it will work with literally one command 
maybe two chained together, that type of thing. If you need to do something more complex, here is several escape hatches out. Now, we can't guarantee if you go two escape hatches out your experience. What we're, what we're going to guarantee is that everything out of the box, which is an 80% use case, most people in the world need this. To escape hatch out to this, the 20% use case, we can guarantee a set of things. Past that, we're not going to. Heroku did that 80% better than anybody in the world has ever even still done. And that escape hatch out is where we kind of fell down a little bit. We didn't give people the full escape hatch out in the Heroku land, but that 80% was still better than anybody ICE, in my opinion, has still done today. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And I, I love the way you're describing this. So are there other businesses or just products, you don't need to name a company or anything, but like where you've seen like they're they're close, like they're starting to nail this sort of like 80%, like you're covering most use cases. And then yeah, the double escape, I like that. It's like getting to the edge essentially. And you're like, look, if you're if you're at the edge, you're at the edge. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. I think there's a lot of people trying for this. I think Vercel on the, and with Next.js and their edge functions are, are getting there on that side of the fence, although it's still a little bit more cumbersome than you want it to be. Um, and let's just, you know, it's it's pretty straightforward. GetBush Heroku Master was was so straightforward. The, you, did, you had to do zero config for this. And the, so it's hard. It, it's actually hard, in my opinion, for me to be, uh, non-judgmental on anything that requires even one configuration step because that's how how good it was. But I think Vercel is getting there on the uh, JavaScript side of the fence. And there's a couple of others who I think are trying this the same thing in big data, um, ML pipelines. Um, the, the challenge, I think, is that uh, there's a certain... I don't know what the word might be here, but there's a certain resistance to thinking that it's important to do still. Um, because they're, you know, developers are okay typing 15 commands sometimes. And and I saw this firsthand in the, when I was working on Canonical and Ubuntu, it was like, well, no, you just have to. And then they would drop like this big old notebook and say like, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, we're going to go fix that. We're going to make it so that's not, I don't have to type 15 different commands to do this one thing. But they never thought about that because they thought about maybe raw raw power or raw CPU cycles. And I, and this is, again, this goes back to like, you know, maybe another analogy, but it's like, I, I still have a bunch of Ubuntu machines around here and I use them for very specific purposes, but I use a Mac on the day in day out basis. And I'm one of those people who used to configure my Linux machines through and through all the configs, all the UIs, all the whatevers. But at the end of the day, if I'm just, if I'm literally sitting in front of something, I need to get a job done. I'll go to the Mac at the moment because I literally don't have to care about a whole suite of things. And I think this is the kind of the difference is like, if you're, if you're trying to get something done, you want everything else to get out of your way. If you're there to tinker, well, go nuts, but over here on the side, and that's usually, this is kind of like one of my, my big things. I think there's two types of developers in the world. There's developers who are literally grabbing a tool chain or whatever it is to get something done. And they don't care about the tool chain. They need to get this thing done. And they want to build this thing and they want to go nuts. And then there's another set of people when they see a stack trace, they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to have a good day. And I'm going to chase the stack trace down. And you never want the people who are chasing the stack trace down to de design your development tools. You just do not want them to do that. You want them to run your infrastructure and you want them to set up and, and maintain that sort of thing, but you do not want them designing your, your dev tools. That was great. First of all, thank you for this masterclass. <laughs> let's, let's pull on this a bit. This is, this is really fun. You mentioned get a job done. 
So this kind of flips to, I'm going to try to phrase this in a better question for you, but are you familiar with the job to be done framework that yeah. a lot of product people? Okay. Is, is this something that you think that product orgs should be thinking in these days, like how they think about serving? I, I think it shouldn't be your primary mechanism by which you, uh, you kind of figure out what product to build or product features to build. But I do think it has to be in your consciousness as you're going through this. I am, I'm one of those people who I, I think takes a very different view to building companies and building products in general, which is I, I typically think that the generic Silicon Valley advice is, you know, usually pretty bad. Um, I think it may be generically specific or generically, generically useful for like random companies and all that sort of stuff. But I'm, I, I'm specific. I need to be in my company. So I try to get rid of it. So like two good examples of this, like how I think about competition. Well, I don't, I think about my customers and the other is like, well, you know, test your way to product market fit. I'm like, no, that's not the way that we're going to do this either. We're going to have a vision and a view and a very specific idea of what we're going to go build. And we're going to build it. And along the way, we're going to iterate with our customers. But you're never going to ask them what we should build and like kind of like work our way to that. Hearing that a bit, like are you're more in the camp of possibly like what you do is who you are. So when you see the customer doing the thing, using, interacting, that's where you're like, okay, there's an iteration here. Well, yes. So let me even take another step back too, which is I, I have a I have a very specific view of how you want to get things done inside an organization too, which is I do not like the idea of writing these six-page memos. I know they're, they're very famous for Amazon. They've worked for them and, and things of that nature. I just don't think it works typically inside organizations. I think it works, again, can work specifically. What I want people to do is I want them to make demos and I want them to show me stuff. And the reason why I want them to do that is one, I think um, it speeds up organizations. I think it it undeadlocks um, weird conversations and these long drawn out decision-making processes. Um, but the other is it's, it's, a, it's a stupid human trick. And I have this entire category of things that are called stupid human tricks, but it's a stupid human trick of stopping the theoretical and getting to the practical and stopping the theoretical is theoretically that makes sense, but I would have all these X, Y, Z concerns. And so therefore you have to each address each one of these theoretical concerns before you're allowed to go forward. And then next, you know, it's three months later or six months later. So it stops those because it puts in the practical of saying, well, this is what it, it could look like. You can give three versions of this. This is what it could look like. Here's how it might work and all that sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden that becomes law a little bit like code wins. And you start to like move forward on that. You're like, oh yeah, yeah. But I don't like this. Let's iterate there specifically. You just save yourself months of going back and forth useless debate because you just you put this down. People are like, yep, I get it. Let's go iterate on this and get in front of somebody. So that's kind of how I think about building product for customers too, which is if you ask 100 people their opinion on something, you're going to get such an overwhelming, um, very feedback mechanism. You're not going to know what to do with it. So just like put something down and start moving with it with people on it in conjunction with building this. And at the end of the day, 80% of it is going to work for people. 20% of it's going to need to be iterated on and a whole bunch of the feedback is going to be useless and pointless. So you just kind of, yeah, you have to build. Yeah. This is amazing. That's a, that's a great call to arms. You have to build <laughs> like it's as simple as it is. And so when we scope that down possibly to dev tooling, like where, where does this theory and ethos that we, we just went through fit into, we're trying to deploy solutions for engineers. I'm not sure a lot of people know this, but one of the most important people for GitHub Actions, there were, there were a bunch of people inside of GitHub that were incredibly important, came together and made the first demo um, of what would become GitHub Actions. But one of the most important people is this guy named Max Schoening. And he was the head of product design at GitHub for a long time. And he was also at Heroku and someone I worked with at Heroku and had immense respect for. He and I are friends. He was at Google. 
um, and I was trying to poach him. He was the very first hire I was trying to get um, once I joined GitHub. And um, thankfully, he, he decided to join. He was running product design. Um, and we were talking about what to go build. And he had a better view for what GitHub Actions should be. Um, once we had the discussion, he was like, oh, I think I understand exactly what we should be going to do here. And he came back and was iterating on it. I always think about him. He showed me something that he was doing at uh, Google at the time, which was we become Google Run. And what he showed me was, hey, I want to show you the presentation I gave to management about it. And the presentation he gave to management was all command lines. It was literally like every slide. And, and Max has a way to make everything look really good. But every slide was just a command line. It was just, this is what it would do. This is what, here's some sample output of what it would output. And in that moment, I knew the genius of it. It was just like, one, I understand everything that you're talking about here. You don't have to show me anything. It was an, it was the most perfect product spec for a developer, um, and, spe and specifically the type of developer you're going after here too, that I've ever seen. And I loved it. And it, in that moment, I knew exactly what, you know, what it was supposed to be and what it could do and also the power of it. And I think about that a lot when I think about develop, um, building for developers. You know, there's all these different types of developers out there uh, and whatnot. But that right there, the simplicity of it, but the power of it too. And I also knew that you could mock that up. Again, going to the prototype phase, you could mock that up so quickly and show what it could do because you just you start calling the APIs. You don't have to build all these systems and stuff. It was just genius. So it, it's a rambly answer. But what I'm trying to say is like, I think about that, that experience of mine, talking to Max about that and that the genius of it and how we, you should likely approach to, um, building for development. One thing that I've found in our experience of like serving uh, engineers um, that's really fun too is like you're just dealing with a population who like fundamentally understands systems thinking, which I find in almost any other business I've been a part of is like hard. So please. interesting, yeah. interesting here too. This is um, something I don't think I appreciated. I, you know that old thing where it's like if it's easy for you, you you think it's easy for everybody. And also, if it's easy for you, you also dismiss how hard it might be for others. And if it's easy for you, it's also something that you assume everyone else is able to do. So anyway, systems thinking and also looking at something like this, that demo, that, that presentation he gave me, um, we tried something similar. I tried something similar a while back with, again, with GitHub Actions. I was doing it with, with um, some of the board and stuff like that. Totally didn't work. <laughs> and the reason why it didn't work is because while they might have been technical a long time ago, they actually weren't technical and they weren't really systems thinkers. I had to actually go and that the actual visual in GitHub demo was very important. Even if you could, I could sell what we called GitHub launch at the time, but GitHub actions internally in a very similar manner to the very you know seasoned systems engineers say, this is kind of what we're building. It roughly looks like this. You show them the command line, maybe one diagram. And they're like 100% on the same page with you. They went away for two weeks to Memphis and built a prototype. No input from me needed other than an initial set with Max there guiding the. But you you're doing it to people who aren't that. You have to go. You have to you have to sell differently. Yeah, this uh, this brings to the forefront our fundraising process when we we were hanging with certain. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, <laughs> I know you. I know you're now an investor. You're you're the yeah. big man with the the big bank account. But is this something that like you know typically if a dev tool is coming in, is it kind of coming your way now, or is like how are things being handled and how do you manage? Well, one of that? the reasons I joined Redpoint is because Redpoint is probably one of the most storied developer tools infrastructure investors in in the game. So it's you know, and Scott Rainey, one of my partners is, you know, he's Stripe, Twilio, Snowflake, HashiCorp, LaunchDarkly, Heroku. Um, you get the idea. Like 
infrastructure developer tools investor Scott Rainey. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go learn from this dude about how to become an investor on <laughs> I've that been side. Told of there's the three. He's one of them. So <laughs> yes, basically. Yeah. And so, and, and interestingly, Scott approaches this because he's also an engineer um, himself, but he's been an investor for about 20 years at this point. So he is he approaches it from the investor side of the fence. I'm still building that skill set, but I obviously am a product eng dude. I can approach it from that side of the fence. Um, are there people who do this well as as investors? Of course, there are people who have invested in developer tools for a long time. Are there people who actually understand what they're investing or the potential? And maybe this is more important: possibilities or potential. What what is possible? Not really. You know, there's there's a couple of people I think who do that, and there's a small subset of us over me. One person at Andreessen, maybe one person at Sequoia, one person at Root, one person at Amplify, that sort of thing. Like there's like one person at a couple of these firms. Most people are still investing in momentum. Literally, like, hey, what what are the numbers? Oh, it's it's doing that classic. Oh, I okay, I get that. I get the chart. So then I got to like quickly tam this out. How big a market are you talking about? Oh, it's ML engineers. That's how big this market is. And you're like, well, is it or isn't it? You know, like I, what, what's the product going to do? And so I think that, you know, if you're, if you're pitching um, VCs, you got to know the type of, you know, type of VC you're pitching. No, hundred percent. I just, I love pulling on that. But um, a part of that, that's also really fun is in this hearing about um, Shoning. Uh, so it was it Max or Mac? Max. It Max. is Max Shoning. Okay, I want to make sure everybody can Google that and check out Max. Um, he, you, he's he's never you're never going to find him. He's on oh, Twitter and um, track he, him down. He, he yeah he's he's on Twitter, but he's not over the top about himself. But he is, you know him him and Sam Lambert are the two I can, I refer to on a regular basis because they were the leaders um, who pulled this whole thing together. Sam Lambert is now the CEO of Planet Scale, so he's a little bit more out there. Um, but and and the original GitHub Actions team and almost entirely to a person is actually at. Planet scale now building planet scale. Interesting. It's, um, it, yeah, um, but Max and and um, and Sam are uh, are the the two that I talk about. But Max is not nearly as out there as uh, Sam is. Well, I'll I'll beg you for a referral for a convo with them later or something, and see if we can make that happen. Um, but yeah, that sounds. But what what's interesting to me is like pulling on a couple pieces here. You mentioned that you obviously were hanging out. You guys, Max, friends. Uh, he was working at Google. You were take. You wanted him to come to you at GitHub. You're like, how do I get this gem? So two two questions in there. One, in your sort of leadership product direction, and as you sort of took on these roles, how do you think about recruiting? And then because it's very hard to recruit. So we're just talking about systems thinkers, like engineers, like like it's hard to find good talent. Just period. And then the other side is I'm really interested in your leadership ethos because how do you draw a person like that to you? Just kind of answer both separate, whatever way. Sure. So, I mean, I, I think, I think recruiting um, is probably the number one thing that most people need to be doing more of. Um, and I think, again, going to playing to your strengths, not everyone could be a product visionary, strategic thinker, um, all that sort of stuff. And I think like a lot of, you know, start founders, are that, but you know, they might, you know, again, if it's easy for you, you think it's easy for others, but most people don't actually do that. Right. They, so, uh, recruiting likely is number one thing that you can do because it's, it's the way that you can affect the most change in organization. By the way, I have a, I have a thought about this too, which is like, there's basically four constraints in the world of software development that we kind of like bind ourselves by. So one is time, the other is money another is ideas and, and it's people. But in reality, if you know money is readily accessible for the most part, even in an environment like this, if you've got a good idea, you can find the money. Uh, time is constant for everybody. 
and ideas. If you if you're honest with yourself, ideas are a kind of a dime a dozen in your organization. Everyone has a, an idea. Maybe not the strategic vision, but they have an idea of what to go build. But it's all about the people. You've got to find the right people to make efficient use of the other three of those things. And that's what it comes down to. And so it's all about the people. So you, should, you need to be recruiting the right type of people to your organization on a regular basis. Um, and how I think you attract those people is different, though. Um, each person might be slightly different. But overall, the, the type of people that you'd be looking for to effectively run those other three constraints um, they want they, they want uh, a set of things. And again, going back to my stupid human tricks things, you got to sell them, and you got to provide them, and you got to build an environment that it makes it possible for them to achieve certain things. But you know, agency autonomy, um, career growth, uh, financial outcome, um, and they, they have to believe in you too. I think that's like a critically undersold, understated thing that they really do have to believe in you that you're able to give them those other things or provide an environment for that. But also, if you're if they're coming because of the vision, they have to understand that and then see that a world in which you could achieve that. It's not just um, pie in the sky type of stuff. And then also, um, you know, a set of people that uh, you can vibe with, essentially, or mesh mesh with. And that'll be different for a lot of people. Some people literally don't ever want to work with a, a hard charger type of personality, and some people really want like a super empathetic or whatever. But like be you authentically, you have to understand who you are and attract the type of people that are attracted to that type of environment uh, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, I, I love that your answer to both of these also reveal even more the strength of your systems thinking, by the way, <laughs> like, like people is a lever, it's it can bound to these three constraints. Also, like, it's it's just very fascinating. So it's it's cool how that permeates. Um, anyway, I hope that observation is <laughs> useful to you. <laughs> Um, and then going into this more, what's cool is your, your recruiting conversation about like how to, you know, attract, I guess, talent. And then of course, engage. So talking about these attributes, one being autonomy, providing autonomy, the right environment for them. Um, that's kind of a developer experience yeah. as well. So it gives well, me kind I of mean, a moment to, yeah, please. Dude, I say building companies is the same thing as building complex distributed systems. Yeah, literally. I mean, it literally is the same thing, except building a company is harder because it's a lossier version of a distributed system. And if you think about messages being lost in a distributed system, about how the retries might work in the recovery and like what would happen in a fault, just think about the same thing as a company, but it's humans doing this now. So it's very messy. And then all of a sudden you overlay <laughs> emotions and possibly just like subterfuge and drama, you know, imagine if like, imagine if you're using Kinesis or maybe Kafka and all of a sudden it, 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 it slept wrong for three days in a row and, and had a problem with a spouse. And next thing you know, it's fighting with Postgres. You're like, uh, yeah. So what's the CLI for that one? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, I, I feel that my, one of my first mentors was the chief strategy officer of Cog Cognos. Remember Cognos yeah. business intelligence? Yeah. Um, anyway, and he, he was the one who said, look, there's actually a mathematical equation for the number of permutations. You can play a chess match. And he's like, it's like, and he told me a number that was like, you know, mind blowingly large because it's chess. And I was yeah. like, Oh, my God, that's cool. And he's like, Yeah, so if you look at a company, he's like, it literally goes to infinity. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> when this occurred to me, this occurred to me at Heroku, by the way, that oh, like, cool. yeah, I'm trying to figure this, this company out and build it. And I had a couple of friends and I who were, were doing it together. And um, as I'm kind of working my way through this, I realized that like, Oh, this is literally like a, a much more complex version of our distributed system that we're actually maintaining over here. Uh, engineers are smart. I'm going to go there, let them do this. I'm going to have to go figure this out. And I have to like invest in the relationships. I have to go do all this pre work. I have to do this post work. I got to like, and I'm like, oh my God, this is tiring. 
but it's needed work to go do. And then when you're when I'm at GitHub, I do it again, but it was obviously higher stakes, less safety nets and all that sort of stuff. But it was, you start to realize this, you're like, oh, okay, so this is how it's going to work. Also, going back to like, you know, kind of talk about systems thinking, it becomes super straightforward. As soon as you understand and look at it that way, it is super straightforward how to build um, companies, um, particularly, let's just say past the product market fit stage when the product is actually working. Um, I, I have zero doubt now I understand how to go from product market fit to infinity in building companies. It's actually really straightforward. Perfect. Yeah. I'm definitely calling you when we're there. <laughs> Give me this Oracle now, please. Like I find, so I, I want to dig in that a bit because like we, as our business, of course, so I'm going to, I'm going to be totally honest, be like, this is selfish, but also I think many people are here, especially in dev tools is the pursuit of product market fit. I, yep. I akin it to, I, I mean, I love uh, high fantasy and stuff, but it's like, you're in the idea maze. So I call it the labyrinth and I've got a torch. And I think in my backpack, let's say I have 10 more and that's really just my capital to take a couple more bets while I try to navigate these winding hallways. <laughs> what do you believe is some of the things, maybe there's some stupid human tricks in here to like try to get a team to understand that the pursuit of a new idea to product market fit is a dark time. And there's dark times later, I think, post, as you said, scale to infinity, it's doable. But those times, I think, are more systems, like you can understand them and see levers. But in PMF seeking product market fit, what do we do? So I think, so there's, it's something interesting because one of the, the challenges I think you have pre-product market fit versus post is pre-product market fit, theoretically, many things are possible. So I can look at almost any product and say, this company could be a massive company if X, Y, and Z happen. And how do you commit? And I know exactly how to make Y and Z happen, but X is product market fit. And it's, it's, it's rather amusing because you could, it, it's almost any product theoretically can become massively large, but you have to find a core audience that you can bootstrap this thing with first. And not all core audiences are the same. So, you know, whenever someone says, I'm making a Heroku 4, I immediately ask, do people in that part of the ecosystem care about a Heroku 4? And they're like, well, they should. I'm like, no, should is not a word we're going to use. Do they? Will they? And it's, it, it, you can see there is, again, there's like, hey, this is this, this the way it should work. No, like not, that's not what that's not what product market fit's about. Product market fit is people pulling this out of your hands without you knowing about it. Product market fit is people want to reach for this, and you can't you can't make somebody care about something that's that's a, a spaceship if they've only been using you know picks and shovels or stones or whatever to start fires. They just won't they won't understand it. So you have to actually bring them along in, in the path they get there. So you know, again, when I'm talking to pre-product market fit companies. I'm literally saying like, you cannot overbuild this. You have to meet them to where they are in the curve. You can maybe take two or three steps. You can get them past a certain point. But what you have to do is you have to make them realize that this is a much better way of doing the way that they're doing it right now. Um, but it can't be so far advanced that they, they're not understanding it. This is why I go back to Heroku. Heroku and Rails were symbiotic in my, in my opinion. Rails changed software development changed web software development. And it did in such a way that it was very approachable to people who use in Perl or Java or whatever, because Java was a piece of shit. It was so hard to use. Perl was a different version of that. Ruby and Rails changed it. Heroku, Heroku rode off the Rails wave. I mean, actually, GitHub wrote, wrote off the Rails wave as well. But it, Rails was needed. 
without rails, Heroku wouldn't have happened, in my opinion. And, and, and like I, people will argue that, but I don't. I think it's super clear that Rails is needed for Heroku and GitHub. And so each one of these ecosystems that kind of developing for developer, uh, building for developers and developer tools has to understand what it's almost like symbiotic relationship is with some of these ecosystems. So again, like even for Cell, Next is dominant at the moment, but Next doesn't happen without React. And it's not that Next and React are related, but React changed the perception of what it means to develop web applications uh, and, and, you, and complex user interfaces. And Next then simplified that and made it like, okay, so we're going to get rid of all this stuff and we're going to make it super easy to use this. Therefore, blah. And all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, totally. And then here's Rissell. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, you could even like sprinkle some tailwind in there. It's like, it yep. is so connected to these, it's benefiting from those symbiotic relationships as well. So, I mean, think about this, like whenever someone says like, again, Heroku for ML or something like that, you're like, well, you can't just skip all the way from 30 scripts to Heroku for ML because you're saying like, well, all you got to do is throw away everything over there. You're like, no, 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 no that's not the way that's going to work. No one's going to do that because what they, again, most people don't care about your fancy, shiny system. They care about what they're doing on their day in, day out. And they need, to, they need to be able to go from the day in, day out to your fancy Chinese system. But if it requires them throwing away all this stuff, making all these big bets, all that sort of stuff starting over, it's not going to happen. Though. Yeah. And you, I mean, again, I'm referencing back here. I'll do a little callback. But you mentioned there's two types of engineers, right? There's the there's that give me that stack trace. I'm having a good day. And then there's kind of, I'll say the other. But like the people who want to stack trace, there are a lot of them. And they're really strong and they're excellent engineers. But if you say, hey, all this fine grain stuff you used to have, it's gone now. <laughs> well, actually, let's flip it around too, because the stack trace, the stack trace people, Kubernetes is Kubernetes is literally the product for those stack trace people. So if you think about it, like that is why that one has so much success. Like I joke about Kubernetes all the time. Most organizations in the world should never touch Kubernetes. Literally, never touch it. There are a subset of organizations. There, there are a subset of organizations that should, and they should enable other mechanisms via Kubernetes. So like the GitHubs, the Herokus, the Cloud Foundries, the VMwares, the whatevers of the world should be using Kubernetes because it actually is a great product for what that is trying to be. Like you're trying to abstract away a data center. That is exactly what Kubernetes is intended to do. And it is um, wonderful at it. And it's still kind of, in my opinion, like terrible DX. No one should be using it except for a subset of people who are going to build on top of it. And then you do build on top of it and you extract away some of its complexity to give to the other developers. But the problem is the people who are building a product over here and don't want to chase a stack trace are reaching for Kubernetes because that's how we're doing things at the moment. And that's a bad fit. It'd be like telling a super deep database engineer who is used to fiddling with indexes on tables and stuff, well, we're going to give you Next or React and you're never allowed to touch that over there. And they're like, what the F, dude? Do you even know what my job is? And right now we're conflating the two of those yeah thank you you've navigated some murky waters for me that is that's a fantastic way to look at it and again it comes back to systems like it's like it's funny like you can see it in the ecosystem when you look at companies the way they relate the fact that they have levers and pushes to i'm gonna I'm keep spitballing here because this is fun for me yeah yeah but like think about it this way okay well, i'm gonna break down engineers into three different buckets at the moment but like, we've always classically put them in two we've got like application engineering and infrastructure engineering and application engineers are going to build the application, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's just call them like they're going to use Rails and Django at the moment or, or Next or something like that. Well, in, the challenge as you're building out these organizations and scaling companies is that those, plat, those application engineers need to interface with typically the infrastructure engineers who are providing primitives. They're providing the databases systems or the, the Kafkas and the, the you know, whatever's of the world. You get what I'm, um, I'm trying to say. 
So what we end up doing in that scenario is we we say, and rightfully so, what I'm about to say is we actually put somebody in the middle between the two of them, and that person is trying to provide a standard common interface into those things. So like, hey, you got a Rails, or you got a Blob, you got Rails or X Y Z, plug it into this overall mechanism of system, you know, containers, something, something, and a different application type, and then we'll do a whole bunch of stuff to shim a whole bunch of things on the infrastructure side of the world. So we have a concern we of application engineers are going to make this easy for you to put your thing into us. Infrastructure engineers, we're going to take your primitives and make them so they interface easily with uh, a standard set of APIs. Infrastructure, you handle the infrastructure. Well, that is a very logical way to, re- to build an organization as a scale so that you can have discrete separation of concerns so that people can do the, the best job in each one of those contexts so they don't have to care too much about bleeding, you know, leaky abstractions, as we say in the industry and all that sort of stuff. It's like literally the same thing for building developer tools for developers. It's understanding which one of those buckets you're building for and what you actually need to provide for them. So if you're building for application engineers, what are you building? How are you giving them the tools? How easy is it to use? What do they care about? So it's it's literally just knowing your audience. Engineers are not a monolithic bucket. You can't just say like, I'm building for engineers. And we say, in, you know, application engineers platform engineers, infrastructure engineers, database engineers, they're not a monolithic bucket. They have different concerns. Yes. <laughs> and so again, we'll go back and reference this really quick. Uh, most investors don't know this. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. For... Well, I, I joke about this yeah. because I was at Salesforce and Salesforce yeah. says there's a hundred million um, engineers in the world because that was a famous number that they put out there. Right. And I was just like, uh, theoretically maybe but like I, yeah. you throw me into a room with someone who's a salesforce admin because they're an engineer and i'm an engineer and I, you know we're trying to have the same we're not going to be talking the same language it's, it's it's so entirely different and so this is again like well there's x amount of doctors in canada and you're like well how many gps how many brain surgeons how many oncologists how many whatever like it's super straightforward in almost any other industry, but for whatever reason, we say engineers and engineer, they're fungible. We're going to move someone from data engineering inside an organization to application engineering, and they're going to be just fine. Secu- forget about security engineering or all those other concerns. For whatever reason, we just think like, well, a line of code is a line of code. Like, well, yeah, theoretically, as a cell is a cell. So you, you can throw Vicodin at it or you can cut it out. There's yeah. a doctor, the doctor. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is one of my deepest vents as well, because I find that this is happening and it continues to happen in the technical space, because I still to this day have friends who will tell me things like in a proud way, like, I don't know how my phone works and like they're proud about it. They're like, I'm not technical. And I'm always just like you. This is just not a thing that we would accept. Like a teacher isn't a teacher. You can be a history teacher like there's you can find slice everything. But if you find slice engineering, everyone who's not in engineering, typically this is a very broad statement, but they'll be like, don't you just write the code? (laughs) You're like, okay. (laughs) Well, I think that's why also everyone's like, well, my printer's not working. Can you fix it? Or my computer? You're like, yeah, "Yeah, you can carry it. Yeah, I can carry it. That's true. But it's like, I'm not that type of engineer. But it's interesting because like when when I was um, getting closer to um VC side of the world. I actually had this conversation once with a VC. It was an older VC, and he just says very, very, very opinionated, very, very strongly opinionated, as like some VCs are, and probably underinformed, I will say. And it was like, nah, developers are developers. And I was like, yeah, sure. And you're a VC, and that's the exact same thing as a hedge fund, which is the exact same thing as a PE, which is the exact same thing as a wealth advisor, right? So, like, what, what should I be doing here? And you could see you just got super pissed. I'm like, dude, like, like, it's so easy on your side of the fence to understand how it doesn't work. Like I'm telling you, it doesn't work this way. I'm yeah. the world's expert in this, and you're telling me I'm wrong. Like yeah. 
like, dude, like you can't sell to me the same way you're going to sell to a Salesforce admin and you can't sell to a Salesforce admin the same way you're going to sell to like one of the infrastructure engineers at GitHub. They're like different people. Yeah, you definitely should have asked uh, which credit card you should have gotten from him. <laughs> it's the optimal points. Uh, I, there's churning Canada. I go to the subreddit sometimes. No. <laughs> it's like, man, I, anyway, a, a first business I built was in the tattoo space. And I remember getting into, yeah, no, I know. We, we, dude, we're going to... We're going to get dinner. We're going to talk about it. But the moral of the story is one VC who brought me in Sand Hill Road. I go and I'm so excited. We were doing a pitch for our seat at that time. And he looked at me and he's like, man, if my daughter got a tattoo, like I'd disown her. And I was just like, why am I here? <laughs> like, it was the funniest moment. He's like, what do you mean? Like, do you want to do business? And I was just like, no, I don't. Not with you. And I left and it turned into this whole thing. And I like, anyway, it's just like, wow, man, like, there's all types, right? There's all yes. types. <laughs> yep. Um, so let's let's take this moment to transition quick because I know we do have a, 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 an unfortunately looming clock. I just want to hang out with you all day now. So, but uh, one thing that we talked about was obviously pre pre product market fit. There's post product market fit. Um, how you take ideas and like sort of like work them through. Um, so one thing that I'm very interested in. So this comes from a selfish place for us is GitHub created the code owners file, and then this thing got moved around. It's a really cool doc type. Maybe, maybe describe code owners real quick. Um, if you'd like, or I can, it's like whatever makes uh, it go ahead. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so code owners in GitHub, it's also now an accepted, um, file type in GitLab as well. And I believe Bitbucket supports it, but basically what it does is allows you to essentially in a short file, like looks like Markdown assign code owners. So someone who knows the most domain knowledge of a place in your code. So at the file level, you can go to the folder level all the way up. And what this does is it allows you to automate your pull request. We'll, we'll speak in PRs because it's Jason. Uh, so you can automate your pull requests uh, reviews. So it'll automatically assign the reviewer as an owner. And you can also assign teams. I want to be clear. It doesn't have to be an individual, which is really cool. Or scale, you can pick teams. And it will assign the review. Or you can also choose to block a merge unless a reviewer reviews it, uh, who is a code owner. So this is the dominant way that these files are used right now. Why did you make this? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, so, so code owners came about organically. It was, I was one of the teams that was working on um, PRs that did this one. And it, I, I think the problem that they were solving at the time was we wanted to more, we wanted to streamline um, PR flow, like as a, what you just described. But we basically want to say, who's the best person to review this it was really straightforward and i thought it was you know when they put it in it was a beta internally for a little while it's like a really elegant solution it was really simple is what it was and you know there's this um there's this want in software engineering um and, so and software development to like automate everything and sometimes the first step of automating something is for it to be manual which is you've got to know something and to go do that and i thought code owners was a great way to not um, fully automate everything, but to say, hey, there's a potential to automate a whole bunch of stuff off of this, but we require you to take a little bit of effort uh, up front. And um, what I, you know, as soon as we saw it, the one thing I liked about it personally was, oh, off of this, there's interesting potential for us, like GitHub Actions is being developed similar right around the same time. I, I'm I'm mistaking, I'm, I think I'm misdating when code owners was released to the public and all that sort of stuff, but like there's a possibility for us to like use this in interesting ways in the future with workflows and tasks and actions and things of that nature. And it was kind of cool because you can kind of see it all start to work, you know, like, Oh, that's kind of interesting. Cause like tag this person this way, this happens there. Um, but you know, I think even what I missed at the time was because, you know, eventually what GitHub was going to go do, and we still haven't, and I don't know if we ever will, um, 
now that a bunch of people have left, is get into the production game, run, you know, run code, um, work, you know, do production workloads, talk about production faults, tag it back to lines of code. And that was something I was obsessed with, which was the act of creation on the keyboard, all the way to code running and faulting in production, and what the entire feedback loop mechanism was the entire loop of that like the action of the keyboard again the keyboard and stuff i thought code owners had interesting like interesting like very primitive level potential to to um make that workflow very interesting yeah and i mean in my research aka wikipedia and other such things it said that this file like was made available in 2017 but it didn't really see adoption till like 2018 and slash 2019. Yeah, that's what I'm remembering too, because it was sometime like mid to late 2017 is what I think I remember in 2018, right around the time when we first internally um, started using GitHub Actions or you know what we could end up calling Actions on a regular basis is when we started to use it a lot. Yeah. No, it's really cool. And like, I mean, obviously I talk about it. We we have codeowners.com. And to your point, what you said was there was a manual part because you had, and what, what we see is engineering managers at large businesses basically figure out who the code owners are, whether it's team or individual, then they literally write these files and commit them. That is how they are made and then put into the system. And then in GitHub, if it exists, it will then use it to manage these PR flows. Uh, and of course you have a choice to turn on require review and the, typically people do this obviously for sensitive areas of code or legacy code where they're like we yeah. don't actually know what this is doing so please don't change well, it. <laughs> in, in many ways code owners well this is like there's that everyone knows that famous uh there's several famous examples of uh, uh comments which is like yes this makes no sense yes it, it shouldn't work this way yes if you change it it will break don't change it don't change like, it <laughs> it's one of those type of um a testing safety net type of things like can you explain this to me you know uh sarah why i shouldn't change this like, uh, yeah, I can't just know you should not change it. Just don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's like, there's moments where it's like someone pushed a diff and then like a, tr a PE fund or something like lost 400 million. Cause like a thing stopped working and it like, it's like, oh no, it's like, well, it was written in COBOL. I'm sorry. And you're like, well, <laughs> anyway, we have these moments. Um, but what's cool is like, so what we did is we automated the creation of these files for teams by scanning GitHub and PR data. And then we also, uh, keep them up to date. So by continuing to watch PR data and what the team's doing through Git, like in all that good stuff and commits, we can automatically suggest alterations or changes. Um, but what we're seeing is beyond that now is that there's actually possibly a platform behind the code ownership data. And that is something I'm interested in. It feels like you're hinting at it with the workflows you could do with GitHub Actions, because you can again see the system linking together. Um, but like, was there anything sort of left on the table with code owners like that you were like, we didn't really. Have I, I, the honest truth is, I didn't spend a ton of time thinking about code owners at the time because I was I was obsessed with um, actions overall. So I had a strategic view, which was I needed to get to the. I, uh, so let me back up for a second, and then I'll get back to code owners. But like in my view, I said before, I don't really think about competitors that much. I think about my customers. Um, I, I that is true, except in one very specific case. Um, and when I got to GitHub, I was obsessed with thinking about the deploy step. And getting to production. Yeah. And the reason why is because where GitHub sat was, you know, remember when I joined GitHub in 2017, it was a social coding site. That's what we still dubbed it. There was still some talk of GitHub for doctors or GitHub for lawyers. And I wanted to stop that in internally, but I also wanted to stop it for the world because I wanted to show the world what GitHub was. And in my view, GitHub was the world's end-to-end -end software development platform, the very first of its kind, the one that would be the most robust um, endure for a century. Um, but there was unfederated white space between the the social coding side of the PRs all the way to deploy. There's a whole bunch of you know individual products that did that. And what I was going to say to the world was I'm staking GitHub's claim all the way over here. And the only one I cared about was Amazon. The only person I thought 
that could theoretically come into our space and do anything against us was Amazon. I didn't worry about Google. I didn't worry about Microsoft. They, they didn't have the thinking involved to do this. So that's what I was obsessed with, with action. So I had to get to that spot and I was going to work backwards. And I was going to work backwards to fill up that space so we were the best. And then I was going to jump all the way over to production and I was going to take on Amazon. It's, 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 it's all like really simple and straightforward when you think about it, but it would take a lot of money and time to go do it. But that's it. Now, code owners, in theory, once you, you have that white space and you own it, could be a magical thing, just like the Pentapot could be, just like um, a bunch of other things, which are once you have the end-to-end the -end software development platform, there's a lot of things that you can do on top of that that were not possible before. And you know, just even just thinking about it for a couple of minutes after we had our initial conversation for this, you're like, oh, yeah, code owners would unlock a whole host of things that would be amazingly useful for developers that they probably don't even know that they would want or need. And in reality, it would become even more useful for things like SRE catalogs um, or production incidents or things of that nature. And I think like there is a theoretical world where some, somebody who built a platform around this could own, again, the, some interface into both pre and post production, some um, across organizational communication mechanism or allows them to have um, other tools built for them in such a way that it unlocks it. And again, that's my view of platforms. When platforms emerge like GitHub and others, it allows other things to exist in the world that now just emergently make sense. Absolutely. And I mean, like, it's so cool because it comes back to, again, it's like the system and then there's this network at play. And like what I see is there's like, I have a bit of a view. I love the way that, and let me try to summarize this momentarily. When you said, we're going to take the deploy and you kind of put that flag down, you're like, hey, both internal, like team, please stop talking about GitHub for doctors. It's probably a bright idea, but we're not going to do that. And then you go like externally, you went, hey, world, or maybe it was like the Forrester magic quadrant or something. Like, please stop writing this down, analysts. Um, by saying that you were taking it, you basically just like bold face stared down Amazon and said, I'll figure out the rest in the middle. Like, that's kind of what that feels like. You're like, we're going to do it because we're taking this. And, and two, there's, a, there's a couple of things at play there, too. One is I've always said I said when I joined GitHub, there, there were four companies in the world that could fundamentally change software with a simple push of a, a button. That was Amazon, Microsoft, Google and GitHub. And one of them looked very different. One of them sat in a different spot in the workflow. Um, but th in, in reality, only two of them could Amazon and GitHub. And it's because Amazon was a dominant cloud player and GitHub was a dominant pre-production code host player. So we owned the most important asset, which was the code. Amazon owned um, an incredibly important, possibly most important um, in the production space, which was the servers and interface into the servers. Um, but a couple of other things too, which were, again, I needed to get the world to stop thinking of us as open source, which was what they thought of us and social coding. I thought social coding was cute, but it was not a 10 billion plus dollar business. And it was obviously um, worked out really well to, to kind of move that way. The other is I needed to get them to stop comparing us to GitLab because we were not the same thing. And just because it had Git in our name, it was very confusing. So I needed to stop that. And I needed to get the analysts to understand that we were not a Git company. We were a software development company. So my joke when I was talking to the analysts was like, well, every time someone co calls us a Git company or a social coding company, like an angel loses its wings. Like I, I, I've got to do a better job of showcasing this to the world. And the other was, you know, I you know, thought maybe we could be independent for a long time. And if, you know, if we were going to be independent for the next 10 years and we were going to we, I mean, GitHub had a lot of issues internally when I joined a ton of issues. So we need to do an entire overhaul of the exec and um, founder staff and all that sort of stuff. We got to get um, a certain set of leadership in there. But the potential for GitHub as an independent company was, I mean, it's AWS, it's GCP level large. Um, which is obviously why Microsoft and Amazon and Google and everybody want to acquire us when we start having those conversations. Of course. No, I mean, it's uh, it's unbelievable. Like these days, obviously, we have SOC 2 and all these regulatory fun things in the way of like 
trying to help like see a, a client's code and i always think about the fact that github was there it's so trusted like it's like this is just what you do and then the ability that that enables is when i was joining github i had a presentation for the the board and for the exec staff about what i would do and literally it just laid out the, the plans for like you know 10 plus years or whatever it was and at the highest level it was establish yourself as a platform use the data get the, the, the production workloads um complete the loop and you can see it like look at the power of copilot look at the power of actions plus copilot plus what you could possibly get in production signaling and so again like there, there's a world in which I was worried about all these competitors, but the only one I was worried about in reality was Amazon because Amazon was ruthless. They would literally come into the space. Now, the one advantage that we had over Amazon was Amazon still couldn't think about developer experience. And that was literally me and Max and Sam and others inside of GitHub. That was our entire jam. So, you know, I, I feel like I could go toe to toe with any Amazon executive in terms of like executive presence and strategic thinking and building a company and all that sort of stuff. But then we got to play to our strength, which was the developer experience and build out the developer experience from here. So we were going to, you know, basically fight a war with them in that in that way. But we were going to use what we had to our advantage, which was our, you know, our approach to serving developers. And they were going to use theirs, which was literally throw money at the problem. Right. No, no. And I mean, I, I love that, though. Like, is there... Is there anything that you feel like you left on the table, like when you decided to depart GitHub? Like, yeah, I mean, it was time for me to like, go post acquisition. It wasn't sure. that sort of thing, but you know, I still, like I said, I still didn't get into the production landscape. Like, GitHub should be running a lot of stuff there, but you know, the way it sits inside Microsoft now, you can't really do that because Azure is supposed to be that. Even if like everyone who knows exactly what I'm saying, where GitHub should get into production workloads, no, Azure will never be this because it can't be this. It, um, it just won't, and you won't be able to tie the loop off as well into that and then there's the thing i mentioned about typing the keys on the keyboard yes we have code spaces which is an answer to that but that's not what i mean i mean we actually need to go further on that side of the fence and yeah. now that figma's been acquired i can actually say this too i did say that um when i was asked post acquisition like hey what would you go after next and i said i'd go by figma and of course like everyone's looking at me like what the hell are you talking about dude i'm like listen like i'm gonna go build out the stuff to go compete with amazon just let, let us go do that for a little while. But I'm, I, if we get this as asset, we will go from the moment of creation, not just keyboard, but the visual folks too. And we will go all the way to production. Literally, we will be the entire interface into software development, end to end, super nuts. And you know, I wasn't very compelling in that argument. And also, like I hadn't built up any political capital inside Microsoft to convince somebody to go buy Figma, which is kind of a far adjacent to what you know, they thought they were buying Yub. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, that that to me shows like obviously the quality of your like product thinking skill set. And also, again, that system, it's like you you said, I want deploy that counts. Yeah. And people kept saying like, well, it doesn't make any sense. I'm like, we're in, in a world of generative AI. And that's not a word that we used back then. But in a world where you're generating stuff, this not only does it make sense, it'll be so obvious to you in a couple of years that you're going to kick yourself for not doing this when it was cheap. <laughs> and that was, and, 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 but that's not also how big companies work. Big companies don't work on a, a hundred year time horizon. They work on quarters. The only one that I, th I mean, it's, I know people think this way, but the only one that always comes to mind for that is uh, the, the Collisons and the crew over at Stripe is like, just, they constantly are like, we are thinking beyond our own lifespan. <laughs> it's like, all right, <laughs> sweet. And I find that fun because it does enable cool stuff. It really does let teams, I mean, back to your point about even leadership and talent attraction, like giving people autonomy, letting them play. Yeah. Good example of this is I was not involved in, um, the, there's this, there's this, um, e-commerce site that was bought by Salesforce way back in the, in the day. 
oh, um, yeah. de- demand wear or something yeah. like that. And I was not involved in this acquisition at all, but someone asked my opinion about it later. And I was like, I have no idea why you bought that when it was the same price as Shopify. Like literally pay double for Shopify and you would have been better off than buying Demandware or whatever this thing was. And like, well, Demandware was written in Java, so we could put it into our, you know, force core system. And I was like, what are you That's talking why? about? <laughs> yeah, what is happening here? And like, it wasn't the only answer to it, but it was like the, one of the prime reasons because Salesforce still had this notion of putting everything into core and all of that. And like, it blew my mind. And at the same time, I was, I remember I'm at Heroku, I'm pitching, we need to go buy GitHub or at least GitLab or something that looks like this because here's what I want to go do. And of course, everyone's like, dude, what the hell are you smoking? Like Heroku is like a production platform. What are you talking about owning one of these things? I don't get it at all. And then when I went, when I was like GitHub, I was still pinging Salesforce saying like, listen, I'm about to go talk to all the majors. And I know like, like theoretically, if you want to take a look, like, you know, co-CEOs of Salesforce, I'm happy to bring this over because we have a relationship. And they're like, nah, we good. I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Man, do you ever like, do they ever take you to dinner sometimes? Like your old friends there and you're like, remember when you should (laughs) have? Like, (laughs) I mean, I still hang out with a lot of the Heroku folks, like Adam Gross, the CEO over there, and uh, Mike Powell, who's now the head of enterprise at GitLab home you know, hang out with them and a bunch of other folks who are at Hashi and stuff. And yeah, I mean, we, all the Heroku folks, we kind of sit there and we were sitting on something. Um, if we, again, had been independent, Heroku would have been a much bigger entity. Same thing with, with GitHub. GitHub just passed a billion dollars in revenue. Yeah. And when I joined, it was, I want to say it was, um, it was just under 200 million when I joined. I think so. Yeah. It was um, below the quarter bill or whatever. Yeah. Um, I know it was well below that because we had celebrated the hundred million enterprise and we had celebrated a hundred million in online as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I know it was below two. I just can't remember if it was above 150 or not. Um, but we just passed a billion. And uh, obviously, Microsoft helped accelerate the sales, the, the revenue side of the fence. But now what will happen, just like classically, what will happen in all acquisitions is that the potential economic outcome of one of those entities is artificially high for a certain period of time. And then we'll just tank. GitHub will never be what it could have been as an independent entity. It just, it just won't be. Um, and it's very rare that something actually goes the other way. Like a YouTube example is very rare that that happens. But, you know, you look at that as an independent entity, you're like, yeah, that could have been fun. But, you know, I'm not going to, I can't begrudge it. I, I, I ended up trying to sell this thing and did, was successful and, and changed my life economically and it changed my life from a social status perspective too. People know who I am now. They didn't, had no idea who I was before GitHub. Yeah. Hey, everybody told me you were a cool guy hanging out at Victoria. So I'm just saying that that's how I got the intro to you. <laughs> no one was like, oh, look at his his LinkedIn. I was like, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> so I just want to hang out with Jason. <laughs> um, I know I'm dragging you over. So I'm, I'm feeling like we should probably start to drive this thing home if that's uh, if that's all right with you. All right, cool. Um, I, again, I could just do this all day. So thank you. First of all, this has been a very good time just hanging out and talking about all sorts of things. We've like managed to reference like products skill sets, leadership, systems design, like I think 46 times, I'll find like a show notes later, but it's really important. Everyone, if you're building a company or product or anything, please look it up. Design thinking is probably a subcomponent of that. So also probably look that up. Um, but coming to the end, most of our audience is, is like engineers and founders. Like it's kind of like those two, sometimes both the same space or sometimes separately thinking about it. Um, is there something that's you've thought about that you didn't get to say during this interview because I asked poor questions or something, but you want to get out to these people. Thing I take away about building companies generally is uh, you. I think you have to have a pretty strong viewpoint and build towards it. And uh, we reference this this frame. I think it's Silicon Valley now 
has taken this on when I was at Heroku, which is like the Strong Opinions Weekly held. And I think that's incredibly important as you're building companies, which is you, you do have to have an opinion. You have to have a viewpoint. You can't be so married to it that you miss the feedback, but you can't be so weak in that opinion that any sort of um, divergent opinion pushes you off. And um, it's basically as simple as saying you want to go west, start walking west, and be willing to, to take a left turn or right turn based upon road conditions. Um, and that's what I really want founders to take away. I think if, if you're building a product for an audience is you should be decently versed in this. And where I think people go um, get off track and it, it can go wrong for them is when they're not, when they're not well versed in the audience and they're trying to build something. Then you, then you basically try to like, uh, you're not data informed, but you're data led. And that leads you to like these lukewarm weak products. And yes, they can be financially successful, but they don't, ultimately no one actually loves them and they can't become enduring products. You can build a company that is not an enduring product, is not um, well-loved. Salesforce is a, is a prime example of this. But that means you have to do unnatural acts to force people to stay on your product. And you're doing you're doing all the dark patterns that we've talked about um, in, in the industry. And again, you can become financially successful to do that. But people hate your product, hate your company, love your stock. That is not If that's the type of company you want to go build, it, it, it is a viable path. But if it's not, you have to take a different approach. Again. Fantastic viewpoint on that. Like, I love uh, strong opinions weekly held. That is probably my favorite, especially when you're, we talked about this earlier, about the pre product market fit stage. It's like you do need to have a vision. And like, it's something that I think about all the time for us, like at Codex broadly, where like we believe the human is integral to the loop of engineering. Even as we see generative AI, even as we see beautiful tools like Copilot, it's like they called it Copilot, I think, for a reason, team. Yeah, we, we always talk about giving it a, an Iron Man suit. That's what we talk about, giving, you know, and, that, and, and that's, literally what it was all about it wasn't about replacing with these autonomous no uh, it, it can't be and it won't be and that's the thing like we it'll never be the case where you take the human out of the loop it just it just won't be there'll be augmented tools for that but at the end of the day you're gonna have to have a human in the loop somewhere you may not need as many but we are gonna have to have a human in the loop Again, the same actually mentor to strategy officer, he said a long time ago when I was like, again, just getting started uh, back at Cognos, that was my first like tech internship. He was just like, look, at some point in the world, there'll be two jobs and it'll be either you are an engineer who writes code for the like robot or you're a person who listens to the robot and it tells you what to do. Like if you play this. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's exactly the same way. And, and this is what I talk about all the time with people when they say, what skill set should I build? And I said, judgment. And it's because you're like, <laughs> That's good. you're amalgamating information really quickly. You should be able to discern from, um, you know, you know, less data points that and make good judgment calls. And this goes to leadership too. Now, one last thing, and maybe we'll, we'll kick this off. But I said, as people grow to be a leader, they need more information. So like you might need 100% of all available information to make a decision for your first time on the job, but then it gets to 80% of available information and you can make the same quality of decision with 100 versus 80, et cetera, et cetera. But as you become more experienced, your actual, what you should be driving to is to make the same quality decision with less information because you can do it quicker and you can just, you can be out in front of this. So, you know, I like theoretically, maybe I'm able to make um, uh, an excellent decision with 30% of the information, but I can make a good enough one with 20 and I can make a, a directionally correct one with 10% of the information. Well, that's I'm trying to strive to get as little information as possible and, and move those markers down even further. So this brings me an incredible a level of comfort because what I talk about internally at our company all the time is like that is all we're trying to do here, like in our vision at Codex, is to give people the way to traverse the knowledge graph of their company. So it's overlaid on an organization graph to get the information and context you require in order to execute. 
it's like, and whatever we do that improves the speed. So for what we think about are like kind of these questions, but it's like, what is the, you know, what information can you give someone so they can answer a question alone? Cause now we're remote. We're well, I think it's like, can you just do that first? If they can answer the question alone, my goodness, great. Like, but then it's like, if they can, how do you improve the quality of their question? So, and who they're asking and please, yeah, jump in. Think about what Amazon has always said about the one way and two way door doors. And you overlay this on top of that and you understand this. And there's, there's a, there's a great, um, 80s movie called Better Off Dead, which uh, there's a like half people listening to this are never going to have watched because it's old at this point, but it, it's actually, it, it's good. Um, but there's a scene on there where um, somebody's trying to learn to ski and they get advice from two different people at two different points in the movie. It's like skiing is super simple. You just go down the mountain that way really fast. And if something gets in your way, you turn. And it's obviously a joke, but it's not. It literally like this is like the whole point of everything that we build inside these companies is not to have perfect information. It's to make great decisions in the face of imperfect information, risk adjusted, probability, probabilistically weighted. That is the point. And I can see this all the time, even in VC now, people are like, well, we need to learn X, Y, Z. We need to have a perfect model and then we'll make a decision. Like, Jesus Christ, you can't know the outcome of the next fight. Who is going to like all of us knew that some sort of economic collapse is going to happen, but we didn't know a war in Ukraine was coming. We didn't know this was coming. We didn't know a pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. Like all this stuff overlaid on top of each other, just blew up every economic model. Like it's again, in the face of uncertainty, probably weighted, all that sort of stuff. Like it's, that's what we're, that's, that's the job. That's what leadership and, and quality decision-making is all about. Absolutely. And providing that ability to make those quality decisions or whatever to others. And like, this is kind of the decentralized leadership concepts of the extreme ownership. If you've read the book, it's, it's great, but yeah, like it's anyway. I love it. Thank you so much for this masterclass. I'll give one final, we tried last time, but we'll do one last time. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to this audience? Like leave them with like some inspiring words. I don't know, Jason. <laughs> I don't know if I have a typically inspiring words for people. <laughs> um, but I think just I uh, keep going what you're doing and also reach out to me on, on uh, Twitter at Jason C. Warner if you have any questions or want any going deeper on stuff. So Amazing. Thank you so much for the time. This has been an absolute blast. I can't wait to get this out.